Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 18, Episode 30. This is Writing Excuses. Planting supernatural seeds. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Don Juan. I'm Aaron. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. And we, what, what, what do we mean by planting supernatural seeds? In Dark One Forgotten, it is clearly a supernatural story, but we pretend like it's not for about three episodes uh, until it becomes something inarguable. This is something that I do in a lot of my fiction. <clears throat> You'll see it in a lot of other things. And it's difficult because on the one hand, you need to make sure that you are preparing your audience for that reveal that, oh, no, this isn't the genre you thought it was. But it also has an added difficulty sometimes when you see Brandon Sanderson's name on the cover, you know there's magic, and you need to do that slow reveal very carefully so that the audience doesn't feel frustrated with the characters how can you be so stupid? Obviously, there's magic. Just get over it and get on with the Can't story. Can't you tell that you're in a Sanderson story? <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's lots of different ways that, that you can do this kind of slow reveal. Um, but let's start with the question I love to ask, which is, why is this valuable? What do we get by delaying that reveal or delaying making it obvious instead of just being right up front about it? I think one obvious thing is um, what drives so much of drama or tension or, you know, it just pulling the reader in is our relationship to character, right? We need to invest in characters as people before we really w care about them when they're in conflict or in danger, right? So especially in horror, you see this, of people starting in the quote-unquote normal world, in their normal life context— you know, on in the car going to the cabin in the woods, right? Or before the apocalypse happens or before the home invasion. So we get to know them as people, see them in their ordinary lives, let us identify with them and see ourselves in them before the very stressful things start to happen. Um, and it can be a challenge because I think a lot of people have this impulse of, oh, we need to start the story in media rest, we need to start the story with immediate action, immediate something. Um, when, in fact, a lot of times what we need to actually be doing is spending the time to get to know them as people before the stuff starts happening. I think one of the reasons for this is that movement actually creates a lot of tension and creates a lot of fear. So one of the things that I love in horror, especially, is the movement from the safe to the dangerous to the unsafe and the movement from the familiar to the unfamiliar. And you can also always do these along different axes. So you can say, this was a safe, familiar place. 
Now it is a dangerous, familiar place. Like I'm trapped in my own house and I know it well, but I don't know what's in here with me. But in order to do that, it's good to have what's safe and familiar and known in there so that you establish it. And then when you move to something that is more dangerous and more unfamiliar, you're moving from something and you can feel that movement as a source of tension. It's in the last place you check. The answer that you're looking for is in the last place that you check. If the, if the answer is, oh, this is magic, and it's the third thing you check, um, we've, we've missed a whole lot of opportunity for tension. Um, you just, by, by playing coy, by planting the seeds and taking every step you can take before you arrive at that final place, you make that final place more important, more wondrous, more more humorous, more horrifying, because by the time you get there, you really have ruled everything else out and 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 it's stickier for lack of a better term. Well, and that's what a lot of this comes down to, right? Is what are you trying to do with your story? If that tension and that sense of unease and discovery are kind of a big part of what you're driving for, then it helps to delay that, to make the audience work for it, to make the characters earn that discovery. Whereas if what you're really trying to do is just some kind of supernatural action story, Dresden Files style, you know, right off the bat, first paragraph, he's a wizard. Okay, let's get on with it. I think that in cases like with the the dark one forgotten, a lot of what you're doing is um, you know encapsulated in that that quote that we keep hearing that the the Holmes quote that once you've discarded the impossible, anything that remains, no matter how improbable, and that what you're doing in this is that she is slowly recalibrating her understanding of what is impossible and taking the reader along with it. And one of the advantages to that, as opposed to the um, to the immediate drop in, the immediate drop in. You, you're, you've got the buy-in. It's like, okay, I understand. Here we are. Wizards, great. But you never think that that story can happen in the real world. Whereas when you do that slow creep in, it, it causes you to start reevaluating the things that are happening around you to, to, in ways that are not always conscious, but that bring the story out into the real world, which is often very unsettling and delightful. Well, this is why it's often helpful to for if you have a molder, then you have a scully, mm-hmm. right? If you have someone who's a believer, then you have someone who's a skeptic. And both can be audience surrogates in different ways, depending on where you fall, right? Because you don't exactly know where your audience is in terms of the readiness for this to be a supernatural story. So giving a voice to one character who can be like, obviously, it's ghosts, right? And to another character who's like, Obviously, it's gases that are causing people to hallucinate, right? There is such a joyful tension in that as you're representing sort of the two halves of the reader's brain as they're trying to figure out what kind of story are we in? Where is this going? What do I want it to be? And that's a way to be playful with it and build the tension until you get to the actual reveal of what's going on. Yeah, and I think audience surrogate, I love that term mm-hmm. because I think one of the things I really enjoy about stories in general is when the narrative and the character are going on the same journey. Mm -hmm. So the character's on a journey of discovery, and then you as the audience, like, are also on, like, that similar journey of discovery. So what I think is really cool in Dark One Forgotten is just at the moment when you might be thinking, oh, wait, like, but this could be something else, they explore that. 
And if you do that at the right time, it feels like you and the audience are working together and telling the story in the same way. And you're just like the character. You could be the other person doing a podcast about this. And that's a really fun way to feel as an audience member. And that was, this is where I relied very heavily on the writing group that I was in at the time. Uh, The very first draft of Forgotten, they thought Christina and Sophie were absolute idiots because I had made it too obvious that it was magic. And the fact that they didn't just completely rewrite their own concept of the universe in, in episode one made them look foolish because I had placed them in a clearly supernatural universe. Uh, whereas, you know, figuring out, well, what is something that the readers are going to accept as an alternative explanation for what is going on? Uh, what are the readers going to think is too far? I had initially, for example, hit the cult idea much harder, thinking, oh, this is going to be a plausible thing. But I had gone too far with it to the point that it was clearly a red herring. And then that just made the characters look foolish for falling for it. So it, it was a very careful balance that basically just required a lot of, uh, you know, writing group reader feedback and a lot of revision. Well, I love that you solved it by hanging a lantern on it, right? I mean, not to get too deep into spoilers, but a big chunk of that first part is them talking to various experts, trying to figure out what is the scientific explanation for what's going on. And you go through this sort of lengthy process of elimination, but it's a great opportunity for character and world building too. And the second time that happens, there's just this incredibly delicious reveal that I'm not going to get into. But, you know, I, I think you very deliberately flagging it and bringing that to the fore lets you plant those supernatural seeds and build to it incrementally and walk as you walk the characters through it. And, you know, I think a lot of the, there's a dramatic irony to those scenes as I think for me, at least I was like, oh, come on, it's obviously supernatural. But watching them go through it made it more believable and grounded and then made the ultimate reveals that much more exciting. Well, and let's compare that to I am not a serial killer, where I did the same thing, but I did it, I think I did it wrong. Uh, Go read all the one-star reviews of I am not a serial killer, and this is the exact issue that they have with it. They thought it was one genre, and then it turns out to be a different genre, and it made them all mad. Uh, What I did in that first one was I just made it a huge surprise. The supernatural comes out of nowhere, It, it chapter seven arrives and it's just like, okay, there was no lead up. There was no buildup. I was not helping acclimate you to the concept first. And so doing it here, I did take more of that time. Like let's let them think that that's one of the very first theories that Christina proposes is this might be a magic. And then it gets shot down and they're like, well, of course it's not that. And then they go through this process of trying to find other explanations and eventually realize that there aren't any. Well, and also the, the pieces of world-building details that you give us are things that that we recognize as tropes from, from genre fiction. You know, shot through the back with an arrow, eye removed, unexplained bathtub full of bones. And like, all of these things are, are recognizable elements that, that could come out of, like, many different many different books and worlds. And so the reader recognizes those clues. And, you know, in in the John Cleaver, like if you had planted a little bit of unexplained sludge earlier, it would have been enough to that to, to like breadcrumb us, but also completely plausible why John would dismiss that. Mm-hmm. Well, and in fairness, uh, today, 
if someone picks up I Am Not a Serial Killer by Dan Wells, they know that Dan Wells writes supernatural, supernatural, (laughs) writes things that are not firmly grounded in reality because, yeah. Um, And so the clue has already been planted. For some readers, and you can't rely. Not all, exactly, Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. We are going to take a moment here to pause, and when we come back, uh, we'll have some more questions. Hey, writers. Are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all, think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So for the thing of the week this week, um, as we're talking about slow reveals and shifting genre tropes, um, I want to talk about uh, the most recent movie from one of my very favorite filmmakers, uh, Nope by Jordan Peele. Um, this is a movie that does hang a lantern on the fact that it is supernatural from the start, but the genre of it shifts in the third act in a way that I found to be truly delightful. And I don't want to get into spoilers, but what you think starts as one thing, you slowly start to realize might be something else going on. And that is such a fun journey to go on. Uh, Jordan Peele is such a master of surprise in the best ways that feels really organic and feels really rooted in the characters and the overall metaphorical journey that everybody's going on. Um, Nope was really one of my very favorite movies from the last couple of years, and I think it's absolutely brilliant, and I really recommend everybody go and watch it. All right, so like I said, this is something that I do a lot of. Um, My book, The Hollow City, uh, is about a guy with schizophrenia who realizes some of the monsters he sees are real. The slow burn reveal of that story is that you don't have any proof that he's actually right uh, rather than just crazy until the third act. Uh, My science fiction novel, Extreme Makeover, takes a very different tack on this where it's split into four sections. Section one is pure corporate satire. There are no science fictional elements yet. They're there and they're in the background. And in hindsight, you can say, oh, that's what's going on. Uh, But the genre does take that 
change once you get into part two. But you also signpost that that's where mm-hmm. we're heading by the chapter headings, which is X amount of yeah. time till the end of the world. Well, that's one thing I want to talk about, actually, and we've kind of alluded to it a little bit. It's very important to signal it in the text, but don't forget that there's also things that are the wrapping around the story you're consuming that will signal to your reader what they're in for, right? This is where what we call in publishing positioning becomes very, very important. So what's the title of your book? What's the cover look like? How is it marketed? What is the copy on it? What comp titles are you using? All of these are ways that we in the industry use to signal to readers to set expectations appropriately. Um, I think a lot of when we do see negative reviews, it's because they were expecting one thing and got something else. So for me, when a cover misfires, it's not that the art is ugly or is bad. Sometimes that's true. But 90% of the time, a failure in cover or title for me is when I look at it and I get the wrong idea or I get no idea of what kind of book I'm going to read. This doesn't mean that the character on the front has to be like pixel perfect, accurate to the character in the book. You want to cover some basic things. Um, But, you know, don't get too hung up on representation of plot. Think more representation of genre and theme and mode more than than the real specifics. And and you can do that. that, that, That's absolutely true. Uh, You can do that with uh, the way the book is presented. And that will affect... I think, the the way that you write the early stuff. <clears throat> in some ways, what you're doing is you are making a promise to the reader, right? This is going to be this kind of book. Your, your chapter one, your prologue, however that begins, is a sort of establishing shot to say, here's what I'm going to give you. Stick with me, and it's going to be great. Uh, with the way the book is packaged and presented and sold, you're making sure that it gets into the hands of the people who are going to like it. And specifically, you want the people who are going to love the way it ends, right? If Extreme Makeover, for example, is a huge science fiction story about an apocalypse that destroys the world, if it is purely readers of corporate satire that start it, they're going to be disappointed by the time they get to the end. And so you need to get it into the right hands first, and then the problem becomes, well, how can you keep their attention in the first part when it isn't yet the apocalyptic satire destruction of the world. And the way that I think you do that is exactly what you're talking about with Mm -hmm. less specifics and more tone and mode. If I establish this as a mystery story in which a weird thing is happening and we're going to figure out what it is, then you're with me the whole way. You are the kind of person who will enjoy the answer but you are also the kind of person who will enjoy that journey of discovery. And so don't think of it as the first part is true crime and the last part is supernatural. The entire thing needs to be of a whole piece fitting into this kind of mystery discovery storyline that is going to encompass both promises that are made. The entire thing is suspense, right? Yeah. Suspense is core to what's going on. It's about them trying to understand and interrogate. It's a mystery throughout. The the parameters of what that mystery could be or what is creating that tension evolves over the course of the story, but we expect that as readers. So provided you're promising something clear up front, which is this is going to be an investigation into something weird, and you're delivering that throughout, I think you'll end up with an audience that's pretty happy with it by the end. 
So it occurs to me as you're talking about this that one of the reasons it works so well in in um, Dark One Forgotten is that there's a difference between genres that are aesthetically driven and genres that are super uh, um, structurally driven. And so you have you're very clear that the structure of that genre, the, the mystery uh, thriller structure, suspense thriller structure, is is solid all the way through. But your set dressing shifts partway mm-hmm. through. That that's the genre shift that we're actually doing, and that's that's a that's a little bit easier to 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 signal in some ways that that's going to happen. And you you set up some of that aesthetic in the beginning again with the the arrow and the the eye being taken. So I think when you're thinking about these these things, think about the kind of genre shift you're going to do. If you are going from uh, romance into uh, horror thriller, you you need to you know that's that is a that is a tonal and structural shift. You have to deliver completely different promises, and that's going to be that's going to be a much harder lift to pull you off. You need to warn the romance readers, yeah, from word one, <laughs> yeah, you're going to get roasted. Yeah, well, this is t- tangentially one of the problems that I had with Shades of Milk and Honey was that I wrote it for science fiction and fantasy readers. Mm. Mm. And it would sometimes just get shelved in romance. And I got multiple letters from people that went in variations of, my favorite was, I'm British and I've never heard of glamour. I think you made it up. <laughs> like, yeah, good, yeah. Good, good, good catch there. Well spotted. Well spotted, indeed. You've outed me. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, wait, we can make stuff up? <laughs> Um, one maybe useful counterexample is um, the Mike Flanagan ad- adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House. Mm. I personally love this show, and I think a lot of people do, but there was a segment of the audience that got very frustrated because I think it does the opposite of what you're talking about, Mary Robinette, where the set dressing remains the same throughout the whole mm-hmm. show, which is there's a house. It is haunted. Um, but it starts in a very horror tone. The first few episodes are very frightening. And then by the end, that horror kind of goes away and it becomes more what I would think of as contemporary fantasy as the the themes of the story evolve. I think that evolution is very beautiful, but I understand that people were set up to get a horror ending and then instead it ends in a, an almost warm and cozy way, still a sad and tragic one, but the tone shifts significantly in those last couple of episodes. So I think that created a lot of disappointment, a lot of frustration for people who thought they were getting this horror thing. At this point, we all understand what Mike Flanagan does, and I think that expectations have shifted a little bit when he has a new project coming out, and obviously he's very successful. But I think that audience disappointment is a thing I think about a lot when looking at how do we execute the ending of this, and is that in line with how we started? Yeah, I think what Dan said earlier about needing to make sure that the reader is satisfied with the outcome. Yeah. I, I often talk about writing as a, a drug made out of words, and you know you're you're hacking your brain. People pick up a book, any, consume any piece of media because they want to change something about the way they are thinking or feeling. And you know you can pick up medication, and it's got a really bitter taste at the end, at the beginning, but it it fixes a problem. Great, you're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna go with that. Um, but if you have to deal with this bitter taste and you don't get the problem resolved, you're going to be really unhappy about that. Right. So I think that that thinking about the outcome, thinking about how you want the reader to walk away from the the project, that's that is 
uh, that's a driving thing for me for a lot of my work. Not not the what what is my plot outcome, but what is my emotional outcome. Mm-hmm. Speaking of ending things, should we talk about some homework? Yes. So homework this week is we want you to go back and re-experience something that does this, something you have already read or watched. For example, Dark One Forgotten, but it could be any of these others we've talked about uh, or even something that you're familiar with, something that changes genre partway through. Now that you know that, now that you've already seen it, go back and read or watch or experience it again and see how that was a setup. How does your understanding of where it's going change the way that you see the beginning? What are the tricks that they are doing to help prepare the audience for that shift that's going to happen partway through? In our next episode of Writing Excuses, we talk about how to stop discounting our own lives and experiences as being normal and when to turn the knob to 11. Until then, you're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.